Hello and welcome to the Sex Talk Love Talk podcast. My name is Ava and I am your host. I am so, so excited to share the conversation that I had. This is a beautiful episode and it has nothing to do with me, but rather our guest, Kelsey Delane, who I have known and admired for the last couple years now. Kelsey is a mentor, a trainer, an educator, particularly in the line of yoga and her work as a doula. Kelsey is really all about practicing what she teaches. So a lot of her work has to do with mindful mothering and the whole self-wellness, having joy-filled relationships, living a life of healing. And you can really just tell um, how amazing Kelsey is, not just by the work she does, but how she lives and navigates her life. She has been an inspiration to me as I met her, I think when I was around 17. It's really been an honor to, you know, grow up kind of having her as this distant role model and now just having this conversation illustrated to me even more how much of, you know, an inspiration and a role model that she is to me and maybe she will to you as well. In this episode, Kelsey guides us through about three decades of her life, starting with her experience uh, growing up in a fundamentalist Christian cult and growing up in an environment that really values purity Um She talks about the messages of sex and love that she received in her childhood. She shares amazing stories and her thoughts about her experience of feeling arousal as a child and a young teen, but being taught that arousal is only what men struggle with. You know, so just like living with that, being like, what is this feeling that I'm having? We go on to the next decade where she finds herself pregnant at 20 and, you know, needing to navigate the decision making that comes with being a college student who's pregnant. And then we go through the process of that into her life now and how she navigates conversations about sex and relationships and bodies with her children It is a very admirable conversation. I learned so much from Kelsey as per usual. So let's get started. This is Kelsey and I talking about Christian fundamentalism, self-pleasure, young motherhood, and talking with your kids about sex and love. Hi, Kelsey. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Ava. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Yeah, me too. I just based on the relationship I've had with you before, you know, you were my yoga instructor through my yoga teacher training. You know, I really got to see like how you communicate with people and what your thoughts and feelings are on um, like communication and love and um, community. And I know that you do a lot of work in the community as you know, a doula, yoga instructor, your mindful mothering, and your focus on joy-filled relationships. All of these things are so valuable, and I'm so excited to hear your story and what brought you to this, what your thoughts are on, um, like, childhood upbringing and motherhood. 
and all that jazz. So Mm -hmm. thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Just to like start it off, might as well just start with your foundation. What did your childhood environment say about sex and relationships? Mm. So I grew up in um, a really kind of fundamentalist Christian culture. I personally um, consider that the community that I was raised in was a a religious cult Mm -hmm. and it was based in what they called non-denominational Christianity. And it was, it was a movement to create an environment where families were raised in a biblical way to follow the teachings of Jesus. And so it was highly dogmatic and controlling. And one of the most fundamental principles of this community was purity mm-hmm. and the power of sex and the place of sex in marriage. So from the time I can remember sex was portrayed as something so incredibly powerful that it was frightening. Mm. Um, it was, it was delivered to me as something, number one, that desire for sex was a masculine problem. (laughs) So (laughs) lust, lust and, um, you know, sexual impulse was a masculine problem and that it was the responsibility of women to, protect the brothers because we called you know the women were sisters and the men mm-hmm. were brothers in this in this church culture so it was it was the job of women and girls to protect the brothers from quote unquote struggling so that was kind of the code word <laughs> for having any kind of libido or sex drive or fantasy so we were expected to cover our shoulders um, definitely, you know, the entire chest cleavage decolletage, right? All mm-hmm. of that really high standards of modesty. So even as a child, uh, I'll give you an example. When we went to summer camp as preteens, the boys and the girls swam in the pool at separate times of day. Mm. And the expectation for the girls was that we were wearing a one piece with board shorts and a shirt. Mm. And we weren't even swimming in the same time of day as boys. But of course the boys were wearing board shorts and nothing else. Um, so that was, that was really the message was women's bodies are so powerful to influence the behavior of men and that it was the job of women to protect the men from their own impulses. And that that sexual desire was really a, a, a masculine issue. So another, another anecdote that I think kind of describes what it was like in that church was when I was just about 15, we again were in a situation where the boys and the girls were separated for uh, like a, a church service type of situation. And when we separated, they told us, oh, okay, you know, we're going to talk about purity, which was code word for sex, right? Mm. We're going to talk about purity. And they separated the boys and the girls. And once the girls were in a room by ourselves, 
the leaders said, okay, girls, you know, now that the boys are in there talking about purity, what should we talk about? As if to say that that conversation wasn't even relevant. So when we separated, the message that I received was sex was something to, to be left to the men to wrestle with and that it was not a women's issue. So that was the beginning of the end for me of being a part of that church. Cause in that moment I raised my hand and I said, um, actually, I'm not sure why we're not talking about sex because I masturbate and <laughs> I think that it's a conversation that we should have. And everybody's jaw just like dropped because that was not okay. Wow. At all. So that was the, that was the beginning of the end of my, um, involvement in the church. Cause I was really, really, um, I was really, sincerely devoted to the teachings. And so even though I had that break with the church at 15 and I had my own ideas about sex and love and pleasure and all of these things, I still have been so molded by those messages that even today in my marriage, it comes up Mm -hmm. because from zero to 15, I got this same message of sex belongs in marriage only and sex has the power to destroy your life if you're not careful and men cannot control themselves Mm. at all. And those still, those ideas still follow you today. They do. They do. And I can, I can see them come up. Right. And so it's such an interesting thing because there's a part of me that wishes that I could just you know, quote unquote, get over it. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I know, I know those aren't true Yeah. yet. They live, those ideas still live in me and they come out in different ways. And, you know, in particular in terms of the, uh, the threat that I feel from other women mm-hmm. and beauty, um, the way that sex and beauty are all around us as a married woman that has this underlying, you know, in yoga, we call that a vasana, Mm -hmm. an imprint on our psyche. Right. And Mm -hmm. so having this, this imprint on my psyche that men can't control themselves and that sex is so powerful that when, you know, I'm with my husband around beautiful women, that's really intimidating for me. And so that's something that I get to be honest about and, um, and own, right. Own it as mine, right. It's not, it's not my husband's responsibility. It's not his fault Mm -hmm. that I, that I came into the marriage with this, but in my first marriage, um, I actually experienced infidelity. And so, um, that was really painful considering that I went into the marriage with this underlying fear that men couldn't be trusted because they're, they can't control themselves sexually. Mm -hmm. And then I actually lived out the experience of having my husband be unfaithful and the pain that that caused. So it's something I'm really mindful of Mm -hmm. now as a, as a wife and in a partnership that I really believe in marriage being a lifelong partnership and taking responsibility for what I'm bringing to the table and my own conditioning and my own past as my responsibility to work through and to work with and be honest about. Mm. How do your conversations look like when you talk to your husband about, you know, opening up about all these things and your thoughts? I'm assuming you're not Mm. keeping it inside. 
Definitely not. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely not. Like <laughs> I've actually had to learn to sometimes talk about it less because, you know, on the continuum of openness, I tend to go way on the side of I'm such an open book that sometimes I can put my my stuff onto other people, right? Rather than really taking ownership of it. And so my you know, my husband and I, we have used all the tools, right? I use my yoga practice as a tool. We use traditional talk therapy and couples counseling as a tool. We've taken communication courses together as a couple. Mm -hmm. So we really put a lot of work into understanding how to best address these challenges when they come up. And what it looks like at this point when it comes up is that I notice my response, right. To whatever, whatever it is that's triggered this fear in me. And I can just lovingly share with my husband, I'm feeling really afraid right now. And I just wanted you to know that. Mm. Right. And so that I'm not making it about him. Like, did you look at that girl? Do you think she's prettier than me? Mm -hmm. Right. Like all the things that, um, that I'm tempted to do or that I have done in the past where I can fixate on his behavior and what he's thinking. And instead I can just share from my heart really honestly and say like, wow, um, you know, sometimes it's something that's as simple and silly as a movie. Right. And so we can be watching a movie and there can be a scene in it that can really trigger me. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's just a matter of me saying, Oh, wow. I'm really having a response to this scene. I'm going to take a break really quick. Right. Mm -hmm. And so then I can, I can kind of manage whatever emotion is coming up for me. And then sometimes it's a matter of actually asking for something about the situation to change. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, my husband knowing me because I have been so open and we have the kind of relationship where we share our hearts with each other intentionally, he knows a lot of my triggers. And so he can, there's times where we're in a situation where he'll turn to me and say, Hey, are you okay? Mm. Because he knows that whatever it is, is something that it's likely to kind of, um, be a catalyst to some of those feelings. Mm. And that alone, that, that tenderness of him just checking to see that I'm okay feels so supportive. And so those are the kinds of things that we've implemented in our marriage of me taking ownership over the feeling and not projecting it onto him and becoming fixated on his behavior, asking for him to do sweet things like, you know, it would really make me feel comforted and supported if you would put your hand on my shoulder when we, you know, um, are hanging out with this friend of yours that I find really attractive and intimidating. It would make it would, in, it would in affirm me if you would put your hand on my knee or um, give me a kiss on the cheek, right? So I'm actively asking for the things that would reassure me and not making it about him, mm. but really, really taking responsibility that these are my feelings. And I experienced trauma, you know, mm -hmm. trauma, trauma from the perspective of too much, too fast, too soon. Mm -hmm. And the culture that I was raised in and the way that I was taught about sex was traumatic and growing up in a cult and then not living that lifestyle anymore. That's also a traumatic experience. And so asking for his tenderness and his patience and his willingness to 
be understanding of why, rather than saying something like, why are you freaking out? Why are you overreacting? Having, having the softness to say, I can see you're hurting. You know, what, what is it that I can do to support you through it? Mm -hmm. Not take it away from me, not be, you know, not, um, make it about him. So that those things have really helped us as a couple. That is so helpful. I, I love what you said about, you know, like, oh, when we're in this situation, I'd love it if you could put your hand on my knee. You know, it's not leaving him to figure out what you need. You're just directly mm-hmm. and simply just saying this thing that would help you. And I love that he is not making your feelings wrong. You know, he's just mm-hmm. along for the ride. So that's amazing. I'm really glad. I, yeah, I, um, you know, you brought up your husband. So I feel like we skipped a decade or two there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm I'm wondering when you were, um, you know, you said like zero to 15, you were like following this certain life during those 15 Mm -hmm. years, besides what was being said to you about sex and love, Mm -hmm. what other outlets of sex education did you have formal or informal like even if it's just seeing sex in movies or whatever Mm -hmm. what other did you even have any other um like illustration of sex in relationships right you know it was super minimal so it was like the messages I was getting from the church which were really uniform and consistent which were also sort of backed up by the messages from my parents. So one time I was probably, gosh, I don't know, 11 and I was eating candy and I was like, man, this candy's so good. Why does, why does something that's so good have to be bad for you? And my dad's response was, well, you know, tiger, cause he called him tiger. He's like, you know, tiger, it's kind of like sex. God created this thing that feels so good, but it's meant for the, you know, to be experienced and enjoyed within marriage and it takes self-control and like all this. And I'm like sitting there like, dude, I'm just talking about candy. Yeah. <laughs> why did you, why did you have to go there? So it, there were random sort of messages like that from my parents directly. And then my mom um, read a book with me in fifth grade that was, it was about how my body was changing. So it was, it was more about puberty, but there was a little bit about like insemination and like the sperm and the egg cell and that kind of biology of reproduction. But it was, it was, it was a, a delivered from Jesus. Like it was literally a book that was Jesus, like, like a cartoon version of Jesus telling you about how your body is changing and how babies are made. And like, that that alone is like not not an ideal way to sit down with your mom and talk about how your body is changing. Um, and and then you know, as a twelve year old, my mom sat me down and told me about her sexual experiences a bit um, in kind of a way to like say, "Hey, this is the road I went down, and I hope you don't go down this mm-hmm. road." Um, and, and then I had an older sister who was kind of always rebellious and thought for herself. And somehow in high school, she had got her hands on a, a textbook, like a college textbook on sex. And so it had some 
you know, picture some illustrations of positions and it talked about pleasure, but it was pretty academic. And at some point I found that book as a teenager. And so I started reading that and it was simultaneously educational, but also like arousing. Mm -hmm. I was always at, uh, in touch with my own sexual appetite. I always had a sexual appetite. And so it was really confusing to be experiencing arousal in my body and, and this acute awareness of my desire for physical touch in a, in a sensual sexual way. And that I could feel arousal in like, so, um, you know, un, undeniably yet I was getting this message that sex was something that men struggle mm -hmm. with. And so I couldn't compute this thing that I was experiencing compared to what I was being told. And then, um, as a young teenager, like probably 13 or something, I found some kind of like erotica, like erotica for mm -hmm. women on like late night television. <laughs> and so I would watch that along with this show. I don't know if you're even familiar with this, but it was talk sex with Sue Johansson. She's like this old, <laughs> Um, lady with short curly hair and glasses and she would answer phone okay. calls about sex. Uh -huh. Right. And so that was kind of the way that I was piecing together my own, um, ideas about sex. And so I was starting to formulate between, you know, thir 13 to 15, I was kind of formulating this reality of my own that was different than the churches, which was that I was a sexual being. And then when, but still in that time period, being sexual was wrong. Right. And so masturbation was wrong. And so when I would masturbate, then I would confess it, which was highly embarrassing and shameful because there is nothing wrong with masturbation, but in the context of the church, it was mm -hmm. a sin. So every time I was confessing this, it was the, it was received with heaviness and, um, disapproval. Mm -hmm. So that was a really challenging thing to metabolize as a young teen. When the messages I'm receiving don't add up to the experience I'm having, Plus the experience that I'm having, I'm being told is not only disappointing, but it's going to send me to hell. Oh my gosh. And that's, that's a really heavy mm -hmm. thing to hold on to, which is part of why I have such a strong visceral reaction to sex in movies or things like that, because it carries so much shame and my own arousal, right? If I'm aroused by a sex scene, what does that mean about my faithfulness to my husband? If sex is only su supposed to be something that occurs within the context of marriage and you're not supposed to even be sexual outside totally. of that, right? Which I know is a fallacy, but it's deeply mm -hmm. ingrained. And so I can feel shame come up for me if I feel any sort of sexual desire that's not explicitly directed to my husband, which then makes me panic that what if he has sexual desire that's not explicitly directed oh. to me, right? Because the what's at stake in, in like subconsciously for me based on my conditioning, what's at, what's at stake was my eternal salvation. Mm -hmm. Like that, what's bigger yeah. than that, right? There is, there is nothing bigger than your eternal salvation. And so that, that was really heavy thing to process as a young. Teen. Yeah. It sounds like 
you know, self-pleasure at that young age, it, it is pleasure, but then you had that added level mm-hmm. of shame and, you know, mm-hmm. fear. Like, that's really scary to think that you're going to hell. It sounds very scary. Right. So, and that was when it only involved you. It was your internal feelings about pleasure. So now how did this impact your pleasure with other people? So once you actually started having sex with other people, what did, mm-hmm. how did that play out for you? So at 15 years old, right after that incident, um, you know, being separated boys and girls and talking about purity and kind of dropping a bomb about self-pleasure in, in a public way, I left mm-hmm. the church and everyone, you know, in my family was still a part of the church. And so it was a really, um, dramatic thing to do. Um, and it meant that I was sort of saying yes to hell, right? It meant that I was leaving the kingdom of God and that I wasn't saved anymore. And so at that point, I had like an, an effort attitude. I'm like, all right, well, <laughs> like, I, um, I guess I'm going to hell. And you know what? The truth is you all are hypocrites because I started to see that as soon as I left the church, I was, I was being treated differently. These are the only people that I ever spent time with my whole life. I wasn't allowed to have relationships or friendships or spend time with people outside Mm -hmm. of the church. So when I left the church, I left every friendship. I left everything I knew. I, I was starting from ground zero. And so it was as if my whole sense of reality, the rug was pulled out from under me and I was starting from scratch. And so at that point I was like, well, I don't even know if I believe in God. Like, all of this is BS, like, um, F them. Like, I'm just going to do my own thing. So I went literally from never having, you know, t- held a boy's hand to within like maybe a couple of weeks, I met my first mm-hmm. boyfriend and, um, I immediately like pursued a sexual relationship with him. I was very much like, I had in this inherent, this sort of built in sense of I own my sexuality and I'm going to do what I want. And I don't know where that came from. It was just kind of built in, I think, from the experience of of being in conflict with what I was being told in the church versus the desire that I felt in my own body. I was like, okay, I have sexual desire and I know how to make myself orgasm and I know what turns me on and I know what I want. And so as soon as I found my first boyfriend, I, uh, it wasn't very long until I pursued sex. I was like, I want to have sex. And he, I was 15, he was 16. And he's like, well, you know, I'm not in any rush. Like we can wait. And I was a little (laughs) forward about it. Um, and, and I had barely just started my period. Right. So I, the mindset I had at this point was I, I was flat chested, kind of a boyish figure, until I was about 15 years old. And I went through puberty around that time and started my period. And so up until that time, I was, I never had any male attention at Mm -hmm. all. Um, And the messages I got from the church, you know, I came from this modesty, purity culture, yet people would say things to me like, Kelsey, you're lucky because you don't have to worry about making guys struggle. Like I could wear something more low cut, because I wasn't sexy enough to actually make someone struggle, right? That was the message I was getting. And so in my mind, I'm a 15 year old who has a high sex drive yet has never been validated that I'm desirable, that I have this magic sex power that it seems like every other Mm. woman has. 
And so I pursued it because I wanted to be validated that I was desirable and I was horny. (laughs) I was just like straight horny. And, um, and so, I mean, I went balls to the walls, man. Like I, I, there was no holding back. I was super uninhibited. Luckily, luckily for me, my first partner was a gentle, Mm. caring person. And so we got to, he was a virgin. I was a virgin. We got to, you know, really lovingly, but pretty erotically explore each other. And we dated for two years and it was a really safe and, um, you know, frequent (laughs) kind of a situation. Of course, when you're 15 and you have Christian parents that are like super overly protective, there was a lot of car sex on really hot days, which is not that fun, but I was willing to do whatever, whatever I needed to do, um, to get my needs met. And that was kind of my whole mentality was like, I'm an empowered woman and like, I'm in the driver's seat of my sex life was kind of where I, where I went to once I left the church. And so I started like buying my friends, like sex toys, like my friends that were virgins or claimed to not yeah. masturbate. I'm like, women masturbate. Like I, I wanted to like shout it from the rooftops because I've been so, I had been so subdued and I'd been yeah. so hurt by the idea that there was something wrong with me that I experienced pleasure in my body that I, I felt this deep conviction to spread the message that women are sexual beings too. And we have a variety of desires and there is nothing wrong with us pursuing those. And so then I like became on a mission, right? So like from 15 to 19, I was like, you know, when I went to college, I'm like passing out condoms, tabling with Planned Parenthood for different propositions regarding, um, you know, abortion. And like, I was just like out there, like I am an advocate for healthy sex life, uh, which was a rude awakening when I did go to college because I went to mm-hmm. San Diego State and the sex culture there was really kind of heartbreaking. Mm. So that was a whole nother, yeah. that was a whole nother thing. Wow. <laughs> okay. I points of what you said, it totally gave me goosebumps. Like I just love how mm. I I love that you I don't know what exactly like gave you, you know, the motivation to do this, you, you have a strong voice. I mean, you still do since I knew you, you know, you're very direct and like, you want to share, you know, pleasure and happiness and joy with people. And it's so awesome to hear that you were doing that when you were like 16, giving your friends sex yes. and stuff. <laughs> like that is so amazing. I'm curious. So you mentioned giving out condoms, like on college campus and stuff. But before that, you know, you just got out of that cult environment and lifestyle at 15 did anyone ever at that point like, even mention condoms or birth control stis pregnancies like was any of that even discussed not by my parents only by uh, my own pursuit of professional resources right so um you know, reading my own articles or like, I was just sort of a self-starter when it came to my sex education at that point. I mean, you know, 15 year olds, like they have access to the internet and all kinds of things. And I wasn't the kind of girl that was educating myself with pornography, right? I was the kind of girl that was like doing (laughs) research on like, like trying to find credible sources and listening to what, you know, therapists had to say, or, um, you know, different, different, people that I saw as professionals Mm -hmm. or experts. 
And, um, as far as the messages I was getting directly, like from my parents was don't have sex. If you have sex, you're not going to see your boyfriend and, um, don't get pregnant. And there was really no conversation. It was just, that was the expectation until, so I made the mistake in high school of sending an email to some doctor. There was like some, I don't know how I even found these resources, but there was some doctor and I was curious about the possibility of pregnancy through genital contact without, um, ejaculation basically. And so I sent mm-hmm. an email asking that question, you know, like, can I yeah. get pregnant from genital contact without ejaculation? Right. And, um, somehow my mom found the email. Oh my God. And so then, you know, she told my dad and I had to sit down with my dad across from the dining table and he had a napkin in his hand and he was just twisting this napkin over and <laughs> over and over with his fist clenched, having this conversation with me about how, you know, me having sex at 16 was, was comparable to, you know, if, if a 12 year old just took their parents Ferrari and took it for a joy ride and you know, that it wasn't my place to take this gift that God had given me and use it in an inappropriate way basically was, was the message I was getting. And, um, so that was, well, so, so he was saying that your sexuality isn't even yours to give, that it wasn't, that it wasn't mine to give yet, that I wasn't mature enough yet to be mm-hmm. responsible with that. Like the same way that a 12 year old isn't capable of safely driving a car. I wasn't capable mm. of, um, making decisions around sex at the age that I was at. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, oh my gosh. I'm like so stressed just imagining. I feel like I'm at that dining room yes. table and I'm like watching my daddy twisting yes. that napkin with his yeah. fist. Um, did, did that make you, I don't want to say act out more, but you know how you were like, once I mm-hmm. left the church, I was like, right. F it. Were you even more like, F it, you can't tell me what to do? How was your reaction to hearing him say that you don't have power over your body and over your sexuality? I have a really great relationship with my dad, despite, you know, despite my upbringing and despite um, some differences in opinions, my dad's heart is gold. And I knew Mm -hmm. even as a 16 year old, that my dad was doing his absolute best to love me and protect me and provide a good life for me. And that, Mm -hmm. that was the best way he knew how. And so, um, I really respect him as a person, right? I mean, he's, he's the kind of person that makes really good decisions in his life and treats people really well. And so, even if I disagree with something, I still respect him and I respect his opinion. And, Mm -hmm. and I care about, I care about, um, how he feels about me too, you know? And so there's a part of me that has always wanted to please my dad. And so I felt conflicted because, you know, here I am with my dad feeling super strongly about this. Yet I just, I, I, that's not the experience I'm having. You know, I'm, I felt, I felt ready 
Right. And I mean, 16 year olds don't really know much. And so I can't, I can't fault (laughs) him for some of his, some of his points. I mean, I was super unsafe. I was, I was having, um, unsafe sex. I was having sex with the same partner. And so I was, I was really nonchalant about nonchalant about safe sex because I wasn't that concerned about pregnancy. I was only concerned about disease. And I was like, well, he's a virgin and I'm a virgin and we're only touching each other. And so, Hey, whatever. Like I wasn't that concerned, even though I sent that email asking the question, I was super cavalier and I was so just naive and ignorant. And so on one hand, it's like, I can see where he's coming from. He's like, Hey girl, you're foolish, right? You're foolish. Mm -hmm. Um, because you're a teenager and your brain isn't even finished developing yet and you can't make the best decisions. And so on one hand, I respected him and I felt pressure to conform and to please him. But then on the other hand, I felt like the, that my, my sex drive was so powerful that I was like, I can't, I, I can't go without like, that was like, like my, (laughs) my body was like begging for this expression and this experience. And I didn't feel satisfied from self-pleasure. And for some reason, even though I was being told that, you know, sex outside of marriage is wrong my whole life, for some reason, it felt more shameful to engage in self-pleasure than it did to engage in sex. And so Hmm. anytime in my life where I've had a sexual partner, I've pretty much my self-pleasure practice like evaporates. And so I have this interesting dynamic that I can see and I'm aware of where self-pleasure was kind of my, my outlet when I didn't have a partner. And so I didn't, Mm. it felt like second best. It didn't feel, um, it didn't feel like what I was really looking for. What I was really looking for was an interactive sexual experience with another person that I could share. And so I didn't want to just, it it felt like a step down to just have Mm -hmm. self-pleasure. So um, Mm -hmm. that sexual frustration or that, that longing and desire really drove me to kind of ignore my dad. Um, Mm -hmm. Which then, you know, I ended up breaking up with that first boyfriend and um, I had a college boyfriend for two years which again was a really safe, loving, you know, really healthy experience of sexuality, um, and, and kind of experiencing that with another person. But then, you know, little miss handing out condoms, talking about safe sex and all this stuff finds herself pregnant at 19 with my third boyfriend, you know? And so it's like, Oh, (laughs) okay. (laughs) So then I got that back conversation with my with my really conservative father about how I was pregnant now. I'd love to hear more about that. (laughs) What was, what was that like, or even your decision process, Uh, you're just your decision process, meaning, you know, once you find out you're pregnant, there's kind of that generic three options of keeping the baby abortion Mm -hmm. versus adoption. Like, did you just know I'm, I'm keeping my little baby or was it like, were you struggling? Oh, I was struggling. 19 year old Kelsey believed that and would say if I ever got pregnant, I'd have an abortion. I would say that. Yeah. And so, um, that's what I mean by my foolishness, right? Like my, my naivete now as a 31 year old, I look back on the, the way, the ways that I, was risky and made choices, um, 
that were foolish, I can look back as a 31 year old and be like, oof, wow. (laughs) Yeah, that was not (laughs) good. Um, and, and so I think I felt sort of, you know, the typical teenage brain that feels invincible, right? Oh, that's not going to happen to me. And if it did, I'd get an abortion. Right. And so Mm -hmm. that was my mindset, I think at the time. And then when it really happened, as soon as I found out I was pregnant, I thought that I would have an abortion. And so I spent the first, you know, week researching, trying to, you know, call Planned Parenthood and like trying to find an avenue to get an abortion. And I was trying to do it quickly because I wanted, I wanted it to be, you know, non-invasive. I wanted to be able to take a pill. And, um, Mm -hmm. I, I think I had, I didn't have the right reverence for what it meant to terminate a pregnancy. And Mm -hmm. in my opinion, right. That there, I was cavalier about it. And so, Mm -hmm. but my experience was shocking to me. I could not for the life of me, find someone willing to give me an abortion. I, the wait list in all of the clinics in my area was so long that I would end up needing like a DNC or some kind of, um, more invasive procedure. And so here I was thinking I'm all, I'm all resourced. I'm educated. I'm an advocate for my own self. And then I'm like finding myself living the reality of what this is and not finding Mm -hmm. a clinician that was, um, willing to give me an abortion. And so I ended up at this clinic that I thought was similar to, you know, an abortion clinic or something, but turns out it, it kind of had an agenda. Um, it was a religious organization that, um, offered, I didn't know that at the time, but, um, so they offered a, it offered an ultrasound. So I had a vaginal ultrasound and I could see the embryo and it uh, had a heartbeat. And in that moment, you know, my partner was there and I saw the heartbeat on the monitor and I felt this visceral sense of profound awe mm. at the, the majesty of life <laughs> and how beyond me this process is, right? It is so beyond me. I didn't have any I didn't have anything to do besides the act of sex, right? I had nothing Mm -hmm. to do with this life, this egg being fertilized and this life being initiated. And so that awe that I felt inside of me kind of shifted my attitude where I felt uh, a sense of trust in the unfolding of life. And I, and I Mm -hmm. kind of internally made a decision that, you know what, pregnancies, terminate naturally all the time. Miscarriage is super common. And if this life is meant to be, then I am going to surrender to the unfolding of this. And if this child, you know, if I, if this child gestates and, and I give birth, then, then I'm just trust that this is part of my journey. And I don't know how or why that shift happened in me, but it did. And, you know, there's, there's part of me, like I've had conversations with my sister about this, where, um, she sees the perspective that the experience I had of going to this clinic, thinking that I was going to get support with an abortion. And then they gave me an ultrasound where I saw the heartbeat. And then they talked, they had me talk to a a nurse who had had an abortion in her youth. And then she was never able to get pregnant. 
And so those are really manipulative tactics, right? It's really manipulative to take a vulnerable teenager and to give her messages of fear for her future and to then give her the, the emotional experience of seeing this, this life with a heartbeat inside of her. So that is super manipulative. And I see that, but Mm -hmm. even so I'm really grateful. I mean, it is manipulative. And in some ways it it kind of disgusts me that people would do that with that kind of agenda. Cause yes, there was pamphlet pamphlets about abortion and there was pamphlets about, you know, social services, helping you find childcare and all of these things. So on face value, they were trying, they were, you know, showing you your options, but that wasn't the truth. The truth of it was they wanted to persuade the people who walked through these doors to keep, to keep the pregnancy. And I, and I see that clearly. And you know what? I'm, I'm at ease with it. I'm, I accept that that's just the reality. And it, and it makes me sad for other pregnant people that walk through that, those doors who didn't have the kind of experience that I've had where I, I am, I'm grateful for the unfolding of that experience in my life and for the presence of my daughter, Thea and who I am today because of all of this. Um, but I do, I do feel a, a, a heartbreak for people who their experience wasn't that and, and they were manipulated into making a decision that wasn't, that wasn't right for them. Yeah. Wow. What an emotional process, like so many ups and downs of like, I can't even imagine, you know, one time I, I was like, maybe I'm pregnant. You know, I had like the two or three symptoms where I'm like, this could be pregnancy. I took a pregnant and and just that, you know, before I took the pregnancy test, there was a good four hours of maybe I'm pregnant. Mm -hmm. And I remember just my thought being like, I want to keep it. (laughs) Whereas Mm -hmm. like all my, you know, I still even say like, if I get pregnant, I'm going to get an abortion. But then I had that three hours of thinking I might be pregnant. And I was like, like, no, you know, it's so crazy how, I just can't imagine, you know, yeah, seeing the heartbeat. And it's this is not even the fact that like, oh, this is a human being. Besides that whole conversation, it's just something made this and, and it's mm-hmm. here mm-hmm. and it's it's me, but it's not. And that's just so powerful. And I guess that is motherhood. And you experienced mm-hmm. that at quite a young age, 19. Were you 19 when you had Thea or were you 20 at that point? I turned 20 um, and then I had Thea. Okay. So you were, you had, oh my gosh, it's like an extension of yourself at the age of 20. Yeah. I, and I've seen photos cause we, you know, we're on social media together. I've seen photos of her and you when she was like a baby, baby. Cause now she's like 11, 11, yeah. I think. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Oh my gosh. I, did you ever, you know, the thing that stops me, like the hypothetical situation of like, okay, I get pregnant. What do I do? The mm-hmm. only thing that really stops me from wanting to have the child is I have plans. I have goals and aspirations that will be seriously, at least in my head, I consider it to be seriously inhibited if I were to have a child. Mm-hmm. What was that like for you? Did you ever have thoughts of like, damn, if I didn't have a kid, this would be way different in maybe a better way. Oh, I grieve that to this day. I Mm. grieve that on a regular basis. I grieve it um, in the form of envy. I look at peers of mine and I see the things they've been able to accomplish. You know, I always thought after I, you know, so I was a sophomore in college Mm. when I got pregnant and um, I gave 
uh, I gave birth in April. So I got pregnant in the summer between sophomore. So my second year of college, then got pregnant in the summer. And then I was in my third year during my pregnancy and gave birth in April. And then I took finals a week later. And, um, then I took my time once she was born, I took a semester off and then I went back to school just at a slower pace. So I only took like a few classes at a time. So it took me forever to finish my second two years. Took me forever. I think I, I think the whole thing took me six years. So the second two years took Mm. me four years. Um, and I always thought I would get at least a master's degree. I love education. I am, I am an intellectual academic at heart. That's who I am. I'm a student. I'm a teacher. I'm a learner. I'm a devourer of knowledge. And so I love being on a college campus and it was my dream to go to graduate school and maybe get a PhD and do research and all of these geeky things that I just absolutely love. And so I look at peers of mine that have been able to get graduate degrees or have traveled or Mm. have, um, you know, just experienced different professional opportunities that I didn't experience. I mean, I was working at Golden Spoon Frozen Yogurt as a pregnant 19-year-old going to college. And, you know, then I got married. Uh, That marriage ended within a year and a half. And then I was a single mom of a toddler finishing college and on food stamps and cash aid, trying to do the CalWORKs program to find a job and support myself and my daughter. I mean, that that was such a rude awakening as mm. a privilege. I've, I have had so much privilege my entire life. And so to be humbled in experiencing some some level of adversity was new to me. And, um, so even now when I look at the trajectory of my life compared to what my life would have looked like, I still give myself permission to grieve that because there is a death that happens when you give birth, especially for the first time. And you transition from being a maiden to being a mother. And that, that death is permanent. There, there's no restoring what life was before you were mother. And I personally give myself permission to grieve that time and time again, because my life is forever different because I made the decision to become a mom. And Mm. I made that decision knowing that I could be alone in this. I knew that I wasn't guaranteed a partner And I made the decision with that awareness and that ended up being the case where I was a single mom for a lot of years and it was incredibly painful and not the life that I would have envisioned for myself. Mm. And yet those experiences have become the most beautiful gifts of my life where I would not be the resilient, compassionate and serene person that I am today if I didn't walk through those things because prior to motherhood my anxiety and depression absolutely ruled my world Mm -hmm. and something happened in the the pain and the um, kind of swimming upstream and climbing the mountain of the experiences of divorce and single motherhood and all of that those things entail 
really shaped me and refined me in ways that I'm, I am so much more alive and joyful and appreciative of life than I was before that. Mm. Wow. This, just the emotional journey that you have gone through being a young mom, a young single mom, do you think that Thea now or previously when she was a bit younger was aware of that grieving that you were feeling? Yeah, I do. I, I think she's highly perceptive and mm-hmm. really precocious and she's always been expressive. And so even as a young girl, she could, she would ask me questions that gave me insight into how she was thinking. Mm-hmm. And so there was, there was a period of time from about one and a half to five years old or so that she didn't see her dad, her biological dad at all. Um, no phone calls on birthdays, no anything on Father's Day, nothing. Um, and so she would, she she knew he existed and she had this sense of a memory of him, but she was so young that she didn't really have a memory of him. So she would ask me questions a lot. And some of those questions would be about the timeline. So she'd be like, like five years old and she'd say, well, when did we move in with Nani and Poppy? Because that's my parents. She calls them Nani and Poppy. And when Mm -hmm. I got divorced, I moved in with my parents, which I'm so grateful for um, that opportunity and the role that they played in my life and her life. Mm -hmm. So, you know, she would, she would ask me like, when did we move in with Nani and Poppy? And I would tell her, and then she would say, I would say, well, when you were one and a half and she'd be like, so I, but before that we lived with my dad and I'd say, yes. And then she'd say, so um, you know, well, where's my dad and where does he live and why doesn't he live with us? And, and then she would, she would ask me about like the, as she got older, she would start doing the math of the time. She's like, that's a really long time. And I'm like, yeah, baby, that is a really long time. Right. So she was, she was, and she would say things like, that's really sad. So she was obviously putting it together. Um, and I don't think she was aware of, my sacrifices and my pain and my grief Mm -hmm. until more recently as like a nine, 10, 11 year old. Um, she is starting to put the pieces together even more so. Mm -hmm. And even today (laughs) she, she put a post-it note on the refrigerator and it says, I'm grateful for my parents because colon number one, um, you take care of me even when you don't want to. (laughs) <laughs> and number two, you've made me the person I am today. And it's like, holy cow, oh my like so much self-awareness, so much awareness there, right? You take care of me even when you don't want to, right? So yeah. there's some awareness for her of the sacrifice that is parenthood yeah. and makes me, it touches my heart, you know, because it's like, it's powerful that she's, she's watching me, you know? So she's watching and seeing that I make sacrifices as yeah. a mom. Wow, she sounds like a little Kelsey, like, you know, (laughs) introspective, asking questions. That's so amazing. And I'm sure like, you recently had another baby. She's two years old now, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. I'm sure, I mean, I don't know, but I'm imagining, you know, being eight to 10 years old, being Thea and seeing my mom, you know, raise another baby and being like, wait, my mom did this with me. And Mm -hmm. she was in college. 
and my dad wasn't there. Like, I, I'm curious if she's, you know, kind of, I mean, it sounds like she kind of has made these parallels. But you know what? I'm sure she has and will learn so, so much from you. Mm-hmm. Um, what are you going to, or what have you, or what are you going to teach her about sex and love? You know, you're parents approach was here's a book of Jesus telling you about what ovaries are (laughs) like what what do you foresee your process being with that so my approach has been from day one to have a an open accurate age-appropriate ongoing conversation with Thea wonderful so So it's just naturally evolved as she's evolved. So even, you know, Ginny right now, Ginny's two, right? So when her diaper's off and she's got her legs spread and she's, you know, she's touching her body and she's looking at it and checking it out. And, and so the conversation sounds like, yeah, that's your body. Yeah. You're touching your body. What does that feel like to touch your body? Okay. Let's put our panties back on, you know, or whatever. (laughs) Right. It's like, it's just acknowledging it. Right. Without any sort of, um, scent of shame. It's like, yeah, there, there you are. Look at your body. And she's very interested in my body. Right. Mm. Um, and, and so there's always been a freedom in terms of just like just nudity, right? So yeah. in my household, I never saw either of my parents nude ever, mm-hmm. right? And nudity was that sort of modesty, even in the household. To me, it it really highlighted the shame around our body. And so with my girls, it's always been that, yeah, you know, these are my breasts and that's what they feel like. And, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. this, is what, this is what I look like naked or mm-hmm. whatever. And, um, and, and then the same with their body. So it sort of evolves as as Thea got older and would, um, you know, ask me about things, you know, or tell me that something felt good. And and we would just have a conversation like about how, yeah, our, you know, lots of things feel good about our body. And there are certain things that it's appropriate to do in public. And there are other things that are appropriate to explore in private, you know, with privacy. So Mm -hmm. privacy was sort of the first conversation about it's not, uh, it's not that there is anything wrong with exploration, but there are certain contexts where it's healthy to, to explore. Right. Mm -hmm. And so exploring your body when you have privacy is appropriate. And, you know, when we're in public, then there are certain parts of our body that, you know, we, we don't explore in public, right? Like those kinds of conversations. Um, and then, so as she's gotten older, because she's precocious, I've followed her lead in terms of she asks questions and I meet those questions, Mm. right? So I haven't had to, um, sort of lay out the groundwork ahead of time because her own curiosity and exploration is informing her questions, which informs me of where she's at and what she's ready for developmentally. Mm. And so then I answer those questions with transparency, which has included things like when you're a, when you are a single mom and you have a daughter and you're dating and then you get married, your daughter knows that marriage and sex and babies go together. Right. So she asked a lot of questions about like, if me and 
Dan have sex? And, (laughs) you know, um, is that weird? And all of those kinds of questions. Right. And, and she would ask questions about like, you know, male body parts and like how, how it works logistically and all of that stuff. And so I would just meet the question and just answer it honestly. And, um, you know, just with comfort, right. So I'm demonstrating my attempt. My, my intention is that I can demonstrate my own comfort with my body, my own comfort with her body, my own comfort with pleasure and my own comfort talking about my sex life in an age appropriate, developmentally appropriate way with her Mm. so that it's not, it's not a mystery. It's not a secret. It's not something that's done, you know, in the dark behind closed doors and never is spoken of. Right. It's, it's just a part of life. And yeah, I'm married. And so Dan and I have sex and it's a really healthy part of being in partnership with someone that you love. And it's, and it's a way that you can express yourself and it's a way that you can connect with other people. Right. And so just having a really just direct and, um, easygoing conversation, I, even though you can see her own, like sort of giddiness or awkwardness, (laughs) right. But just when I am settled and at ease and comfortable, then that's communicating something in a nonverbal way Mm. about the normalcy of being a human being with a body that is sexual. Totally. How do you know what's age appropriate? That's the, yeah. How, you know, when, when they're like, well, how do you have sex? You know, meaning like, what's mm-hmm. the mechanics of sex? What's, what, right. what's, how do you know what's too much? So you, in, in my experience, the best way to know what's too much is you answer only the question asked and then you allow space for follow-up questions, mm-hmm. but you don't continue to offer more detail, right? So mom, you know, 10-year-old asks me, mom, what is sex? Well, sex is when, you know, tip, typically, because I'm not even going to get into that, right? <laughs> but typically, sex is um, when a man puts his penis into a woman's vagina. Pause stop question answered. Right. But then there's likely going to be a follow-up question. Right. And so then I sort of, that's what I mean by I let her guide the conversation is like, I didn't have to say, so a man becomes aroused and blood flows to his penis and it, and it gives him an erection, which means that his penis is hard and can penetrate. You know what I mean? Like I don't have to I see. Um, elaborate. You would... I can just answer the question. I see. Okay. So if she specifically asked then, okay, well, how does it go inside? Then you would give that, you know, short, not even as detailed as blood flows to the penis, blah, blah, blah. But you're basically saying they're leading the conversation. You're not leading the conversation. Okay. Yeah. Right. And so if she said, how does that work? I would say, well, you know, the penis becomes hard and then Mm -hmm. it's able to go inside or something like that. Right. And so giving it in, And when you have a 10-year-old, you've spent 10 years in dialogue with this 10-year-old. So it's not just like all of a sudden you're having this random conversation. So you kind of know who your child is and how they respond to things. And so that's helpful, too, to have that intuitive sense of, okay, who is my child? And also 
letting them follow, letting them lead. And then I, I, I know that for me personally, you know, as I grew from like a teenager to a young adult, many of, I think my sexual experiences were negative for lack of a better word, because I was stuck on the idea that, you know, having sex with your partner is assuming they have a penis is their penis going inside of you. Is there any part of you that wants to introduce sex as what we call foreplay? Not necessarily describing what foreplay is. What What are your thoughts on that? And, you know, mm-hmm. making sure that your your daughter, by the time she is having sex, knows mm-hmm. got to be warmed up first, you know? <laughs> like, Well, yeah. And, and my personal belief is that all of that is sex, right? Like mm-hmm. sex, sex is not penis and vagina penetration. But when, you know, an eight-year-old's asking me, that's a sufficient answer. But, you know, now she's 11. She just turned 11. And I can tell by her body that she's starting, you know, to really change. And so at some point, her period, you know, menstruation, menarche is on the way. And so I'm preparing for that conversation. And I'm preparing kind of like a a ritual um, to, to recognize the uh, the nature of what it means to bleed. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I foresee that those conversations about self-pleasure and, um, sensuality and sex and partnership are, are about to take another evolution mm-hmm. where so far everything's been very general and non-specific, mm-hmm. and I can feel, I can sense that she's starting to, um, develop a more keen awareness of her body and, um, sex and stuff. And so I plan to do essentially the same thing where as she's older and she asks me about sexual encounters or for instance, kissing, right? Mm -hmm. So kissing, is something that she's asked me about before. And like, what does it feel like to kiss? And, (laughs) you know, it's, you know, right now she's at the point where it's like, it's gross to see somebody kiss. Right. Um, but that's not always going to be the case. And so as those conversations happen where she talks to me about kissing, for instance, right. Mm -hmm. It might, it might organically open the door to a conversation about touching each other's bodies while you kiss. Mm. And, you know, that there's lots of different ways to, um, pleasure yourself. There's lots of different ways to pleasure a partner and all of those things are all considered sex. Mm. All the different ways that we enjoy our body, all the different ways that we enjoy other people's bodies, you know, consensually and, um, Mm -hmm. pleasurably is all considered sex. Mm-hmm. And the same, cause it's kind of the same way that I've talked to her about like her anatomy. And I, I am insistent that she has a vulva, right? That, yeah. that when we are in the bathtub, that is not your vagina. That is your vulva. The vulva is on the inside. The vulva is the birth canal, right? Mm-hmm. Or I'm sorry, the vagina is the birth canal. It's on the inside. And so even just the way I talk to Ginny and Thea, and I've, and I've sort of set that precedent for my husband too, that like when, when we talk about body parts, not that he's talking about their body parts that, you know, that Mm -hmm. much, but when you have a two-year-old, like he's, he's changed her, her diaper and like said, said vagina. And I'm like, it's her vulva, you know, (laughs) (laughs) Um, just to be anatomically correct. 
it's important to me for her to understand that she has a vulva, she has labia and a clitoris and, and that all of these parts of her body, including the rest of her body can be pleasurable, can be sensual, can be erotic and, and understanding the anatomical accuracy, I think helps in painting a more clear picture that's less vague and less, um, generic, right. That Mm -hmm. you can be more specific. Like I really love when you kiss me here or touch Mm -hmm. me here, as opposed to like down there, like when, when grown women refer to their genitals as down there, I think we have a problem. So, (laughs) so my, my, um, goal as a mother is to have daughters who know the names of their body parts so that they can better communicate what they're looking for, what they're not looking for, what they feel good about, what they don't feel good about, what they're curious about, et cetera. And then that even makes it easier for Thea to ask me questions if she can talk more specifically about her body. Totally. I feel like if I were to be a mom, I would be so relieved to be having these conversations that you are with my child because I'm also going to assume that she knows that if she has a problem, she can just ask you or tell you and it's not an issue it's just a conversation and that's really what I want like that that's my goal for like society in general is that we can just comfortably talk about it but the issue is is that we have I think most parents who aren't even comfortable with it themselves so it's just generational lack of knowledge which a lot of times like creates trauma just like over and over again that has to do with um sexuality whether it be physical or mental trauma related to that and it's time to stop and it sounds like you're breaking the chain which is such a relief Mm. um but also I'm sure you know we have you know it's not this like set script that you can say it and then your child's gonna be okay (laughs) you know it's assuming everything goes as planned which is so scary but Mm -hmm. that's being a parent I guess which you obviously know better than I do but I can only you know I see people in my family you know trying so hard to be like the best that they can be as a parent but if the kid's gonna do what they're gonna do either way yeah so and I think it it points to the nuances of like privacy versus secrecy, right? Mm. Um, like appropriate versus bad or wrong, right? So mm. I want I want there to be an openness between Thea and I, where I respect her privacy according to what she's what is safe for her as an eleven year old, right? So we we made the decision because her biological dad lives far away, and she once or twice a year travels solo to go see him. We made the decision last year to get her a cell phone. Bad decision. We changed our mind because then we realized (laughs) with everything you have access to on a cell phone these days, and even with parental controls and things, these children are smart and Thea is smart. And she found ways to use her phone in in what I would consider dangerous ways, because an 11 year old doesn't understand, you know, predators online Mm -hmm. and an 11 year old doesn't understand why doing a TikTok video in your bathing suit where you're doing the splits or like all these, you know, Mm -hmm. things, why that could in any way be unsafe. Right. So she doesn't get that. And so it's my responsibility as her mom to give her age appropriate privacy, right? She doesn't, she does not um, 
require at this stage privacy to have access to the internet without me knowing what she's looking at. She's not ready to protect herself in that way. And Mm -hmm. that includes what she's ready to see and be exposed to. And so, you know, I've had that when we had that conversation where we decided to revoke that privilege and, and take the phone away and change our mind about her being ready for that. I told her, you know, Thea, it's my responsibility as your mom, um, to keep you safe and to protect you from even your own decisions sometimes. And so it was, it was, uh, not the best idea. It wasn't the best timing for me to give you the freedom to have a phone of your own because you weren't ready for that level of, of responsibility. So as you become more mature and you, um, better understand how to safely use the internet and what's appropriate for you and when, then you'll be able to have more privacy because you'll be able to have the maturity to, to protect yourself. But for now, um, it's my job to make those decisions for you. Right. And Mm -hmm. so then the phone was taken away and it wasn't about what she did was bad. What she did was wrong. What she did was, um, not normal, right. What's wrong with you or anything like that. It, it was just about keeping her safe and that she, at the time she was only 10, right. 10 year olds don't have great decision-making skills. They don't know a lot about the world. So, um, that those are the kind of conversations that I want to have with her as she does start to explore so that there isn't secrecy, but there is privacy. Mm. Just the language that we use impacts how we see really anything. But when we're talking about sex and love, I feel like even like I know with, with my parents, like for example, we weren't allowed to sleep over at our friend's house Mm -hmm. and which I hated Um, but I also understood because I mean, they explained to me, there's just people who you can't trust and, Mm -hmm. you know, they'll, they can touch you inappropriately or do whatever. And Mm -hmm. thankfully that didn't, it didn't really associate sex and fear together, but I feel like if they were to use different language, it would have been so possible for me to grow up and just think that anyone who wants to have sex with me, like wants to hurt me. Mm -hmm. So I do think language is so important. Do you talk to Thea about predators? Is that a conversation that has come up at all? Well, in different language, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we have, um, we walked by, we were at Fashion Island doing an uplifting yoga class a mm-hmm. couple like weeks or a month ago or so. And we walked by a storefront that said something about um, sex trafficking. Mm. <laughs> and she was like, what's sex trafficking? You're like, like, Oh God. (laughs) I was like, wow. Um, you know, that's, that is, um, a tragedy where some people are, um, exert power over other people and force them to perform, um, sex acts and they don't have a choice about it. Mm. Like that was essentially like my best attempt at like, holy crap. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that's scary, right? I mean, that's a scary, really dark conversation. Um, but she also lives in the world of today, yeah. right? She lives in a world 
where sex trafficking, you can't avoid it as an issue mm-hmm. where, where, um, she's exposed to things that maybe in other generations, you would never see that word just plastered on a storefront, you yeah. know, but that's the world she lives in. And so I want to, to resource her according to the world she lives in, not the world I wish that she lived in mm. the one. And so that includes conversations about, um, consent ever since she was little, you know, this is your body and you get to decide who touches your body and how they touch your body. And uh, that includes me and that includes doctors and that includes daddy and, and, and anybody that ever wants to touch your body in a way that you don't feel good about. You have the right to tell them that and you have, and you're always welcome to talk to me about it. Right. Mm-hmm. So just letting her know, like no one is, is discounted. No one is, uh, off the hook for this parameter of your body. Right. Like even me, even doctors, like letting her know that what consent is really essentially, yeah. um, And, and then that evolving as she's gotten older, where when she did, you know, we had a conversation about TikTok videos and why she wasn't old enough to have a TikTok account. And, um, and we did say, you know, it's scary to think about, but some people, uh, are harm children. I think that's the way that we said it. (laughs) Some people harm children And you're not quite old enough to understand how or why or all of these complex things. And so you just need to trust us right now that it's best for you to not have a TikTok TikTok account so we can keep you safe, right? So we didn't like go into detail about it because she was a 10 year old, you know, but that was our best attempt. And, And as a parent, we're constantly making mistakes and we're doing the best we can. And then we learn from our mistakes and we try to do better next time. But I think for the most part, um, when, when your intention is to be humble in the learning curve as a parent and, and to even let your child see that, right? Thea, I let Thea into my, um, my learning process as a parent, right? And I'll apologize and say, you know, I made that decision and in hindsight, it wasn't the best decision. And as your parent, I'm doing the best I can, but sometimes I make mistakes. Right. And just letting her see into that Mm -hmm. frailty of mine, I think is contributes to the sense of trust where if I can admit my mistakes and I can let her see my shortcomings and be vulnerable with her, then she can do the same with me. Mm -hmm. I, okay. I'm so looking forward to like re-listening to everything that you've (laughs) said and just study everything that you said because you know I do sex and relationship education for you know it's mostly like college student and up but I'm wondering you know I've always wondered like okay but like how does this actually look like when you have like a child in your life where Mm -hmm. it's it's not oh we have this info session uh for an hour on Wednesday night it's not like that it's like this is just the child's you know entire life and um just making it this normal conversation and I don't know many people who implement these honest conversations and so I'm really glad that you kind of painted the picture for what that looks like. Um, You know, honestly, it makes me excited to be able to like have these conversations with 
youth in my life. You know, I'm looking forward to my cousins. They're 10 now, you know, they're getting to that age. They've asked me questions throughout the same mm-hmm. thing, like, what's kissing feel like? Or like, do you kiss your boyfriend? Like stuff like that. Ooh, the questions are going to be getting more and more serious in the next yeah. couple of years. You know, it's, a, they are. <laughs> it's exciting, but it throws you off, you know, like what's, mm-hmm. what's sex trafficking? It's like, oh my God, it's so much. How do I say this in two sentences? And I should probably come up with it in the next 10 to 15 seconds. But, yeah. <laughs> but I guess you totally, it's always an option to always be like, you know what? There's a lot to sex trafficking. I'm going to think about a little more and I'll, I'll let you yes. know tonight what it is. I guess yes. it's not like you need to know all the answers right then. So I guess. And sometimes they do ask a question that they're not ready for the answer. Mm. So, um, for instance, you know, this isn't sex related, but my husband has a lot of really severe scars on his body from self-harm. Mm-hmm. And um, she has asked about, I mean, we've been together over seven years and she has asked him about those scars so many times. And every time right now, his answer is, um, I'll tell you more about that another time, honey. Mm. Right. So he's, he, whether it's, he's not ready or he feels she's not ready, whatever it is, it's just, we'll talk about that at a later point. Right. So sometimes they do ask a question that is just, it's just not time for, maybe it's, Maybe it's what's happening in that moment where it's like, oh, this is a serious conversation and this isn't a serious moment yeah. or it doesn't allow for the attention that is required to this or the follow up that would be required to this or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I love that you said that you brought that up, that you can always sort of put a pause on it, whether it's that you want to think about it or that they're really not ready for the truth yet. Yeah, you know? that's a really good point. I didn't think, oh, yeah, they can. Because we were saying like they lead, they lead it. They ask and you answer. But mm-hmm. you're right. They'll ask questions where it's like, not yet. And I'm sure it's like your gut tells you, mm, mm-hmm. not yet. Um, yeah. I, I feel like you gave so much valuable information in the last hour or so. And there's insight on, you know, what you have learned throughout your whole process. But I'm wondering if you could tell your 16 year old self, just one thing, like the biggest, Mm. like takeaway about sex and love, what would you want her to know? Mm. That's huge. It's so huge. Um, (laughs) Oh, let's see. I would tell my 16 year old self that there is nothing wrong with you that your desire for sex and intimacy is beautiful and that you are worthy of love and devotion and pleasure Hmm. I got goosebumps (laughs) Mm -hmm. I wish yeah I would I would love for my 16 year old self to know that as well and I I like the, um, you said love, devotion, and pleasure because, yeah, I mean, we do so deserve that, but we're not really told that we do. Like, I know I was in so many situations where I wasn't having a good time, but, and in perspective, you're like, okay, well, why didn't I just fucking stop, you know, Mm -hmm. but it's because Mm -hmm. I didn't know. I I just didn't know, but you know, you live and you learn, but I want people to learn than live for some things. 
Um, I think I would also tell my 16 year old self, honey, you're sexy. (laughs) Men want you right. Like, like I would, if, if I was 31 and I was talking to my 16 year old self who felt like she was boyish and, Mm. you know, um, not powerful. She felt so disempowered and so unattractive. I would say, honey, girlfriend, you are sexy. Okay. You know, like I would just let her know, like there wasn't anyone in my life that was, that was ever giving me that feedback. Mm. And I was so modest and so shy that I wasn't getting it from the world because I was, I was so, you know, kind of closed in, except for when I was in the bedroom with a partner, mm-hmm. you know, and so I, I think I would add that too. Bedroom <laughs> slash car. <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> I'm like the quintessential lady in the street, freak in the sheets kind of girl <laughs> where like, it always throws people off when I have like super crude jokes or something, because I come across as like pretty conservative and, um, and I am in a sense, I guess. Um, but but I'm, but I'm not at all inhibited when I'm in relationship. And so that's always kind of throwing people for a loop where they're like, Whoa, okay. Hello. Oh my gosh. I love it. I love it. Oh my gosh, Kelsey. I, you know, I never, all the situations or environments I've been in with you had nothing to do with conversations of sex and love. You know, it was always, Mm -hmm. I guess, I guess one time I did one of your trainings and it was about like communication and love and your relationships. But besides that, it was very much yoga, self-healing type stuff. And it is so amazing to hear you, your insight on this. You know, it it really, when you reached out to me and you're like, Hey, I I'm down to talk about these things on the podcast. I was like, Oh my gosh, I didn't even know these things about you and that these Mm. things meant so much to you to come onto the podcast. And it really illustrates to me how complex everyone is. You don't know people's past. Like, I didn't know you were raised in this religious cult. Like, I had no Mm -hmm. clue. And that is, Mm -hmm. it's so amazing to hear your insight. And I'm sure there's people that are going to listen to this and relate so hard to you and maybe not have realizations that you did so I'm so 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 grateful for you being here thank you thank you for creating this platform yeah I can feel your your sincere desire to um to create a sense of safety and self-acceptance and understanding across all the diversity that is the human race Mm -hmm. and to facilitate the kind of health and vitality that can come from our sex lives and our love relationships. So I, I'm just totally cheering you on with this platform because I know how much it can serve people. Mm-hmm. And like you said in, in episode one, that there's all this exposure to sex, but the sex education hasn't risen up to match it. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really excited to see that you're doing this. Yes. Thank you so much, Kelsey. The way you word things is so beautiful. Like I feel so good about myself from what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so Good, much. you should. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. This was so lovely. It was so lovely talking with you. Um, more to come. We'll keep in touch mm-hmm. as we do. Okay. Sounds good, Ava. Much love. Yes, Mwah. much love. Bye. If you want to reach out to Kelsey or see more of her work, you can find her on Instagram and Facebook at Kelsey Delane Yoga. Kelsey is K-E-L-S-E-Y Delane, D-E-L-A-N-E. So Kelsey Delane Yoga on Instagram and Facebook, or you can check her out, KelseyDelaneYoga.com. 
go ahead, give the show a rating, give us some stars, let us know how you feel in the review section. And if you have any comments, questions, recommendations, if you want to be a guest on the show, you can direct message me on Instagram at sex talk love talk podcast or go ahead send me an email sextalklovetalk at gmail.com once again it's a pleasure to have you i'm looking forward to hang out with you and our guests again next week bye